Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you. My name is Tim. How long have I got? Oh, yeah, and after you just speak for an hour, and then we'll have ten minutes for questions. Marvelous. Thank you for having me. Uh, someone is interpreting, I, I am told, so I shall speak slowly and loudly. <laughs> loudly, okay. Um, I was very impressed in the first session of the quality of the program here. And uh, rather like someone shared in the first session, I felt rather embarrassed to share. I was thinking mostly about not, not having sugar one hour at a time. I think you've all got a far better program than I have. But anyway, I'm sitting here this evening. Um, and I have a very odd history with recovery. Um, I, I wish I had a neat and tidy Alamon story, but I don't. I have an Alamon story which is mixed up with my story of uh, recovery in other fellowships. And if you take four or five different coloured pots of paint and pour them into one pot, you cannot then separate them. You can't get the original paints back. So I don't know where, whatever I say, I don't know where it came from, who it came from, which, I know sometimes which book it was found in, but not always. So if anything I say helps you, wonderful. And if it doesn't, well, there's not a lot I can do about that. I shall do my best to share the parts of my story which are relevant, um, and I'm going to focus on my Alanon experience and issues and solutions I've found in all sorts of different places. On the subject of finding solutions in different places, uh, there was an episode of the American comedy series Friends where uh, one of the characters was teaching another of the characters to sail. Uh, the Jennifer Aniston character, I hope this isn't breaking her anonymity, she was teaching Joey how to sail, and Joey had no experience of sailing and was terrible, and she was shouting at him. And he said, why? Stop shouting at me, I can't stand this. And she said, I'm not shouting at you, I'm shouting near you. <laughs> So my Alanon, and that's an Alanon tool. It's not, it, it's, it's not one of the slogans, but it's as good as for me. Uh, not everything is about me. The angry person was angry before I walked in the room and will be angry after I leave the room. Therefore, I didn't make them angry. I may have occasioned the anger, but I didn't cause the anger. They were angry already. So it's not about me. Um, why do I even need to go to Al-Anon? Um, again, I wish I had a neat and tidy story of how I qualify for Al-Anon, but I don't. There are lots of different 
reasons why I needed to come to Al-Anon and why, when I did come to Al-Anon, I identified more intensely, actually, than in any other 12-step fellowship I've been to or belonged to. Um, because alcoholism and the response of the family to alcoholism was the environment I grew up in, and I had no idea. Because it was just the air you're breathing. It wasn't an object. You can only see an object if it is somewhere over there. If it is your entire universe, you can't see it. If you asked a fish, it probably wouldn't know what water was, because it is simply the medium it lives in. And I grew up in a household with a brother, a much older brother, who was gone by the time I knew uh, what was going on. He was out of the house, he was living somewhere else, and he was an alcoholic. And he was allowed to visit occasionally, and when he was allowed to visit, I wasn't allowed to see him. I, I saw him through windows, but I wasn't allowed, I interacted for minutes but I wasn't allowed to get to know him. And we received a phone call one day from a police officer from another part of the country with an accent I didn't recognize to say that my brother had committed suicide as an alcoholic who I discovered decades later had been in AA and had left AA and had started drinking again and had committed suicide. Except in my family, we didn't use the word alcoholic. We didn't use the word suicide. But you know, because you've seen the person with the bottle of whiskey and the cigarettes, uh, you see things in dreams that you shouldn't know. And you know what the truth is, and you know you've been lied to. So I grew up in a family deeply affected by alcoholism that would not use the word alcoholic. We had a different word. Lazy people. My family had lazy people. And in my family, my mother, bless her, 89, she diagnoses every new person in the family, anyone who marries into the family or anyone who grows up in the family as a lazy person or one of the competent people whose job it is to clear up after them and to stop them from destroying themselves. And I haven't even got to the crazy bit. <laughs> the competent people in my family who are very organized and very efficient and very effective and scan the horizon for danger marry lazy people <laughs> that's the crazy bit uh, my father God rest his soul was not an alcoholic that he was gone a lot, doing things which cost a lot of money, and we don't know what those things even were. But the sense in my family was that there are people in the family who make 
the family leak. They leak the money, they leak the security, they leak, they leak everything, and our job is to stop them from leaking. And the way you stop them from leaking is by shouting at them. And if you shout long enough and hard enough, and use all of the other techniques of manipulation, the silence, the g- you know the game where you're silent and they have to guess why you're silent, because if they loved you, they would guess accurately, and so they, because they don't guess, it means they don't love you, so you're now even more silent than you were before. This is, this was thought of as one of the family tools. When I was 11, I said to my mother I was depressed, and she said, we are all depressed. (laughs) It gets worse. She added, but you'll grow up, you'll have children, and they will be your life. So now, I knew that I had a responsibility towards her to be the reason that she was on the planet. And I wanted to die at this point as a brother. I wanted to follow as swiftly in the footsteps of my brother as I could. Uh, But he had used up the family voucher for suicide, and so I couldn't, because the fewer there are left the more responsibility on the remaining children to fix the broken adults. And I have had six brothers and sisters of various descriptions. Three brothers are dead. Two of the sisters are mentally ill. The third uh, sister is nuts. (laughs) Um, So there was a lot of pressure And when my brother committed suicide, uh, uh, it was actually said overtly, if you do well at school, it will take your family's pain away. This wasn't even a covert message. This was, it was a banner over the door. And the sense was, it was a, a family in which there were some achievers, and the sense was, if you, if you had ever achieved, you had to continue achieving, or guess what? It means you're one of the lazy people. And so I was terrified growing up. What am I? Am I one of the competent people who rushes around doing things, or am I one of the lazy people? And it turned out I was one of the lazy people. Um, so I had uh, a short few years of catastrophic addiction, mostly alcohol. But um, my alcoholism was very closely tied up with other aspects of my alanonism. I've talked about the drunks and the leakers in my family. The other thing about the leakers, my father was one of the leakers, one of the lazy people, one of the addicts of some description or other. Um, He was gone a lot. But when he was there, he was also gone a lot. He wasn't present. 
No attention. His attention is not on us. Uh, I'm not blaming him. I'm simply describing the experience we had. And so the yearning is to find a way to connect with the people who are absent. And I've spent my whole life chasing after people who run away from everyone and running away from the people that want to connect with me. And then wondering why I'm lonely. Um, so that those distant, dreamy people, to me, were very attractive. And I found alcoholics. Uh, as an adult, I formed relationships with people that were emotionally shut down and distant and usually had a tiny little bit of a problem with alcohol or drugs hardly worth mentioning. But everything was taped down. And the other thing about those people who dealt with their emotions with alcohol and drugs was that they could contain themselves, the ones I chose. I know there are different types of alcoholics and addicts. Um, the thing that I was terrified of was uh, uh, there was a lot of shouting when I grew up uh, from my mother. Um, and there was a lot of worrying. Um, two very important mechanisms in the condition of Alanonism. Um, my parents ran a guest house. They were retired and ran out of money because of my father. So my mother started a guest house. She turned the house into a guest house. And each year, because of changes in tourist patterns, we were having fewer and fewer guests. And she would sit at one of the windows overlooking the road, counting the number of cars driving past per hour and doing graphs and predicting the downfall of the family. <laughs> and this constant worry and con uh, worry as a means of controlling, if you worry, it's because you care. And if you don't worry, it's because you don't care. So if you try to get away from the worry, she would follow you into another room with the worry. So you've left your worry behind. Let me bring it to you. <laughs> because if you didn't worry, you were clearly one of the irresponsible people. So this is a little bit of a picture of the family I grew up in. Um, the other thing about the shouters when you grow up in an environment with people who have gone a lot, and even when they're there, they've gone a lot because they're passed out or whatever, and there are people who are shouting, at least the ones who are shouting notice you're there. And it took me years to see this. There is an emotional payoff for me in being in relationships with people that have a lot of negative emotion about me, because at least they have some emotion about me. And so I've spent my life, strangely, not running away from people from whom others would run away in an instant. And there are various personality types uh, in, in Alanon, I'm sure you've noticed. 
and and I can be all of them on the same day. Um, the four personality types. The the, the, the first one is, is the doormat, and I started to become a doormat with shouters and angry people. So I would put up with stuff thinking it was completely reasonable, not knowing I was allowed to leave the room or stop the conversation or find someone to make the shouting stop. I would take it and take it and take it. As I say, because there was an odd payoff there. And similarly, with relationships with alcoholics, I've had a lot of relationships <laughs> with alcoholics. Um, and the two main types, actually three main types of relationship with alcoholics, there were intimate relationships with alcoholics. This is as an adult, intimate relationships with alcoholics. I have sponsored several hundred of them in AA over the... I've been... So, for what it's worth, I've been sober in AA for... Uh, coming up for 25 years. Uh, my first Al-Anon meeting was around 24 years ago. And there are some other fellowships too. 46 now to save you doing mass late on Thursday evening in Jerusalem. Um, the doormat. I would be a doormat with alcoholics I was in a relationship with. I would let them get away with stuff because there is a there is a particular form of intimacy that I found with alcoholics that I couldn't find with other people, and it's very difficult to describe. And not everyone in Alabama has experienced this. When I've shared this before, some people totally get it. Others are completely blank. So if this that you don't relate to, then uh, don't worry. You're not the only one. You can still stay in the room. Um, but I found it the other day uh, in the book Discovering Choices, um, which is one of the Anon books that I love very greatly. Um, it's about a man who's in a relationship with a woman who is an alcoholic. And he says, one day, she was a sober alcoholic that starts drinking again. Then one day, she has some drinks at a business meeting, and our evening plans changed. She got drunk, which I enjoyed, since she was far more physically affectionate to me than she had been previously. I enjoyed the affection, such as it was, but it got me wondering about how much she actually liked me or whether it was just alcoholic behavior that had nothing to do with me. And I would experience alcoholics when drunk, being capable of an intimacy they were not capable of sober and so unbounded I could connect. Whereas healthy people, there were so many layers of boundary and learning to get to know them. Who has the time for that? <laughs> I needed to go straight to the result. And with an alcoholic, I could get it. 
except I've been on the other side of that equation and I know what's going on. Um, my friend Tom, who's been sober since 1976, he says, and in Al-Anon since 1978, talks about alcoholics and addicts. Uh, the the alcoholic addict bit of the brain being shared with lower animals, with mammals and with the, uh, with other mammals and with reptiles. And the example he gives is your your pet lizard does not love you. It knows you are the source of flies and heat. These are the two things it needs. Whilst you supply the flies and the heat, it will appear to love you, but it loves the commodity, not you. And as an alcoholic, I used the commodity that other people provided me, whether it was love or attention or respect or validation or money or support. And I never saw the person, I only saw the commodity. And as an Al-Anon, I would be on the other side of that and just not understand why when they were sober, they were not there again. Where is this person gone? It was a complete mystery to me. I just didn't understand it. Um, and if I can share some lyrics from a song which is not conference-approved literature. So if you only want to hear conference-approved quotations, get some of the cheese from the table over there and put it in your ears for about a minute or so, then you'll be safe. Um, um, and, and this sums up my Al-Anon experience with relate, intimate relationships with alcoholics. The sun comes up, I think about you. The coffee cup, I think about you. I want you so, it's like I'm losing my mind. Um, all afternoon, doing every little chore, the thought of you stays bright. So, this was the curious thing. I would be in catastrophic relationships with relapsing or still drinking alcoholics, and yet the thought of them and what things would be like when they finally got sober, that was the thought that stayed bright. When I have helped them become the person they could be, so there was an awful lot of... The great thing about fixing other people is you appear to have the power and you don't need to deal with your own stuff and other people's problems seem so much simpler and more obvious to solve than your own. And as a friend of mine in Al-Anon says, the less I know about you, the clearer I am about what you need to do. <laughs> the more I know, the less I have to say. Um, this wonderful line, spend sleepless nights to think about you. The temptation to continue thinking about the alcoholic, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. It's not, it's not that the thoughts are keeping me awake. I stay awake to continue the mental obsession 
with the alcoholic. And this doesn't just apply in intimate relationships. There are all sorts of relationships with alcoholics which are not intimate, where the sponsees, people I'm doing service with in recovery, <coughs> where I'll get a text at 11 o'clock at night and I immediately reply and then there's no response and 2 o'clock in the morning I'm still thinking about it. Spend sleepless nights to think about you. And this is the key line about trying to have a relationship with someone who is in active addiction and looking for genuine connection. You said you loved me, or were you just being kind, or am I losing my mind? And I have found relationships, intimate relationships with alcoholics, drove me crazy because I was I never knew who was going to walk in through the door. Mm-hmm. Terrifying and disorientating and not knowing, am I mad? Are they mad? Is my response normal? What is going on here? Having no way of navigating those situations. Um, much more recently, um, I haven't had a close relationship with a drinking or relapsing alcoholic for a very long time now. One day at a time. Um, But there are other types of relationship. If you're in the world of recovery, you're going to come across a lot of addicts and alcoholics. And, of course, part of the program is to try and help people. Uh, now, so far, so good. The solution in some fellowships is, in fact, to try and help people. But I've got a tiny little problem with help. Um, and it's this. My friend Annie um, from Marin County says, help is the sunny side of control. Don't get your help all over people. (laughs) Like it's some kind of substance that you're spilling on them. And one of the things that makes Al-Anon a more sophisticated program for me is that the same behavior in two different relationships can be healthy in one relationship and deeply pathological in another. So I will get a sponsee phone call and I spend a lot of time sponsoring and I couldn't do it if I didn't have the Alamon program to help me, the Alamon principles. I can have a phone call where someone explains the situation and asks for help and I set out three helpful solutions and it's the right thing to do and it's the healthy thing to do and another call can come in ten minutes later and my contribution can be word for word the same except there's something wrong here and where there is something wrong there are lots of different dynamics that you get with other people in recovery but one of them And this is something where I've played the game on both sides. And by game, I don't mean something that people are doing on purpose to be, to mess around. 
it's that what's going on on the surface is not what is going on deep inside the relationship. Um, I've tried to help people in the past where I realize I've told them the same thing 17 times and they phone up the orphan with the broken wing and the big eyes saying, help me, I need help. And I hear the sound of, of the, the, you know, those Western films with the cowboys and the Indians and the cavalry come over the hill to save the day at the last minute. And I hear the sound of the cavalry and I am the cavalry. You're cold, I'm a sweater. And this is not helping. If someone is repeatedly coming back, they're not after help, they're after something else. And I know when this is going on because afterwards you feel had. And by that I mean there's a, almost a moment when they say, gotcha, when you realize that you, you've spent 45 minutes on the phone carefully explaining something you've explained a hundred times before and you feel used, and you can't work out why, because the same words with a different sponsee on a different occasion would have been water on parched land. And the test is, over time, is the help actually being acted on, or are people coming for something else? Are people coming for relief, not recovery? Um, one of the other... One of the other things I've had to learn as well, um, it's incredibly difficult. This is a very difficult situation. I'm, I uh, sometimes chair committees. Uh, many years ago, I chaired a committee um, where lots of people were getting angry. And I was running past my sponsor what was going on. And... We decided that what I was saying was appropriate. I was chairing the committee appropriately. But what would happen is, you know, when someone shouts at you, and immediately your brain starts responding, and then your mouth starts responding, and there has been no decision-making process, do I even need to be in this conversation? Is it even appropriate to be in this conversation? And I've had so many conversations with people in recovery, people outside recovery as well, where information appears to be being exchanged, but it's really one person vomiting out the emotions onto another. And I'm now able to stop and say, I'm not going to have this conversation now. I may be ready to have this conversation tomorrow but I do not have to engage if someone is angry. And the image a friend of mine gave for this is, you see that when you have a discussion with someone that's angry, when I have a discussion with someone that's angry, I tend to get angry myself <laughs> because I want the other person to see things the way I want them to see things. And so I now have an investment. 
and you try and be rational and you try and be logical. But as a friend of mine says, it's like playing chess with a pigeon. (laughs) It doesn't know any of the rules. It struts around the board. It knocks the pieces over and then acts like it won. (laughs) And again, angry conversations in service in AA and Al-Anon and in other fellowships appear to be, they appear to have as their content, um, you know, the organization of the tea and coffee rota. But they're not. They're about something else entirely. It's one of those gotcha games. And when I'm in my right mind, I don't play Um, And the thing about these games is that when one person stops playing, the game is over. (laughs) Um, um, My poor old mother was very angry for very many years for reasons I understand and honestly are good reasons. But lots of that will get projected onto me. And I tried responding angrily. I tried responding rationally. And just on the rational point, um, sometimes, as a friend of mine says, I, I'm educated beyond my intelligence level, which means that I, sometimes I need very, very simple things pointed out. And this is, uh, uh, it's on a section called Tools for Detachment in the book Making Crises Work for You. And uh, this is one of my favorite uh, lines. Uh, Accept the fact that you will not get healthy behavior from a sick person or logical statements from an illogical person. And I've spent years trying to talk logic and reason into people. And apart from the fact there's a little more to life than logic and reason, I've finally learned, uh, I, I can't control that any more than I can the use of alcohol or other substances. And my poor old mother would uh, shout, and I and my other half would go down to stay with her for a few days. My other half would go to the supermarket to buy the bribes, the chocolates, the fizzy wine, the other, the flowers. I mean, they were gifts. They were, but she did, they did help. (laughs) Let's be frank. And when my other half was gone, my mother would use that opportunity to let rip. And I discovered it was extraordinary. For years, I did not know how to respond. Shouting didn't work. Being logical didn't work. Being rational didn't work. Being practical didn't work. Being silent was the worst of all. Something had to change in me. That was the surprise. I had no, I, 
I had no idea the problem was not how I was behaving. The problem was that there was something broken in me. And this is what this is all about. So I've talked a lot about them and how that affects me. But the problem lay in me. And I discovered with my own mother that that game is only possible if the software is installed for the game inside me. It's a two-player game. Without someone else with the software installed, the game cannot be played. I needed to de-install that software. And I'm going to talk about how I reached a position of peace with my own mother. And that process I replicated across all of my other relationships. Uh, just to spoil the outcome, I have a lovely relationship with my mother now. We speak every day. There was a year when we spoke only once. So this is a difference. This has worked. But something needed to change inside me. The software needed to be deinstalled. And the truth was, there was underlying <coughs> resentment against her. That I understood rationally, but I hadn't let go of. Um, and I found solutions, practical solutions in all sorts of places. But the fundamental solution that I found to my internal problem has actually come for me through the big book of um, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it took me a long time within AA to even start using the big book as an effective tool. Um, Can I just ask for a show of hands, how many of you have read the big book? Most of you, marvellous. Has anyone done a resentment inventory, a step four resentment inventory using the big book? A lot of you. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. Uh, what is amazing, it was written in 1939. But the understanding in AA, in Al-Anon, in other fellowships of what was written in 1939 has grown a lot since then. And it is extraordinary to me that the same instructions can be followed now with greater depth than I think they even could be at the time. Um, I spent a lot of my life thinking that whenever there was an emotional reaction on my part to something, it was because you did X, Y, and Z, so I felt A, B, and C. I did not realize that I was the one who was producing my A, B, and C by interpreting the X, Y, and Z. And what I've done in the Step 4 Resentment Inventory is learned to take full responsibility. And sometimes people say, well, I don't know where I stop 
and the next person ends. And I understand that sentiment because action-reaction seems so instant. It feels like you are, you know when they come in through the door and you know they've had a bad day and you can't relax until you found out what the bad day was and fixed it and get confirmation that they're now okay and then oh we can all relax now it feels like everything is all enmeshed um again for my over-educated mind uh, i needed a very basic thing to be pointed out you individually collectively are responsible for your actions, your thoughts, your beliefs, your values, your emotions, and your internal world. I am responsible for my actions, my thoughts, my feelings, my values, my beliefs, and my internal world. End of story. So when I'm upset, my question, I need to know what you have done, but that has not caused my emotion. My emotion has been caused by my interpretation of what you have done. And I think of my mind as being like a huge corporation with lots of departments which do not work well with each other. And I have a department um, called the Risk Management and Planning <laughs> Department. It has an overall blueprint for the entire universe. <laughs> it knows specifically what everything should look like, how everyone should behave, how everyone should vote, where borders should lie. Very clear on borders. Very clear on all sorts of things. Whose money is really whose money? And one of the sub-departments is a sort of surveillance department. It is constantly examining everybody else's behavior to determine whether or not it matches the script. And I've chased lots of things in my life. But on the, if this were an AA talk, I might talk about money and sex and power and prestige and all of the, the obvious things the ego goes for. On the Al-Anon side, um, I want comfort. What does comfort mean? Comfort means safety. What does safety mean? I had this idea when I was growing up that if you were perfect, they couldn't get you. If you were perfect, if you outperformed everyone, you could keep the world at bay. So you needed to be perfect to keep yourself safe. And so this little department in my mind in permanent overdrive about making sure that I am demonstrating to you my perfection or else the whole structure will crumble. If I can't look after me, who will look after me? That incredibly important idea of safety. Where am I going to find it? And I spent years trying to find it by several means, being perfect myself, 
getting rid of your imperfections so they didn't leak onto me. Um, part of my mind will see other people as untidy rooms that need to be tidied. And once all of the rooms are tidy, I can go to bed. Completely nuts. So my negative emotion has always come not from the events that happen out there, but from my comparison of those events to my blueprint. There is always a judgment. It goes event, comparison, judgment, rage. <laughs> or fear or rage. They're the same thing, but you lift up fear, there's rage underneath. You lift up rage, there's fear underneath. And if I was ever going to be comfortable with my mother, I needed to I needed to lose the judgment. How could I lose the judgment? Uh, I blamed her for the way I was. If I hadn't had this childhood, you know the story. But the worst thing, the thing that I could not easily get rid of was seeing my mother as an unhappy woman then in her late 70s this was around 10 years ago, this big change happened with my mother. Thinking, she's lost a number of children, she's now lost two husbands. Um, she's isolated, she is reclusive. She, she's not British, uh, she was from a, a European country and some difficult things happened in my family during the war, which she never got over. Thinking she is never going to be fixed. She is never going to be well. And I cannot bear the sadness of seeing a life gradually dwindle without ever having shone. And my blueprint for the universe is basically this. Everyone has to be okay all the time, or I can't go to bed. And so I developed a couple of other, I've talked about the doormat character. I had a couple of other characters. One of those is the bulldozer. So implementing my plan, I don't care who is in the way, this is how it's going to be done. The controller. And this is where I go around fixing other people's lives so that I can give myself the illusion that problems can be fixed by human intelligence. Because that gives me comfort. I can fix my own. And finally, the victim. Where everything that happens around me seems to affect me with a higher volume than anyone else. And my... How I'm affected by other people is dependent on the demands I have of them. When I stopped demanding that my mother be happy and said, I'm not sure if this is even official as an Al-Anon slogan, but I've heard it so much, who cares? Let it break around you. Let it break around you. I was trying to stop. I've spent a lot of my life trying to stop things from breaking around me. Things which are meant to break. That's a lot about the problem. 
what was the solution for me? There's a wonderful line in the big book where this is the forward to the... Oh, one thing on my mother. When I stopped judging her for being unhappy, that's what it was. I was judging her for being unhappy and thought I don't, I would choose for her to be unhappy, but I'm going to withdraw. It's not, I'm going to continue judging it, but accept it. That's not real forgiveness. It's not real forgiveness to maintain the judgment, but to wrap it in gold paper of fake forgiveness. The job is to remove my judgment so it becomes neutral. So I saw her unhappiness as a neutral thing. That is, I'm in, I'm not angry at you, I'm angry near you. She wasn't unhappy at me, she was unhappy near me. I could relax in myself. And my mother would, would, for years, would still try to bait me with, you know, those particular topics that they know that if they bring the topic up, they can raise your emotion instantly. She would try and try. And I remember one conversation. I was on my phone to her. She was criticizing me for something. I can't remember what. I was doing something radically wrong. I don't, don't remember the detail. And she was saying, what do you have to say about that? And I just said, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. And she carried on with her evidence that, that the, she should have been a lawyer, that, that the prosecution, <laughs> the prosecution continued its case and she kept checking. So what are you going to say? She wanted to play the game. And finally she said, you're not going to respond, are you? And I said, no. And she did the most extraordinary thing. She laughed. She hasn't tried it again. The change needed to happen deep down inside me. And then it started to change in her. Um, where the solution comes from, I was reading this with a sponsee just this afternoon. Um, forward to the first edition. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Um, mind comes first out of those two. Um, later on in the same paragraph, it says many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. And I can diagnose my degree of spiritual sickness at any given moment by asking myself, am I at peace? Or is there chattering going on? Are there stories being told? And to take you to the end, when I now look back at my childhood, I was hurt not by any of the things that happened 
but by the story I told myself about those things. Now, I'm not blaming myself for that, for those stories, because I was taught by people how to tell stories about things that happened. I just copied their method. So this is not about blaming people, but it's about taking responsibility. People say you cannot change the past, but the past, when I sit here, is a story about what happened. And so the past can be changed. And my whole step four, resentment inventory, is all about how I thought that I was something more than a spirit temporarily trapped in a communication device called a body. My ego full of plans for sex and money and power and prestige and comfort and thrills and appearance. All of those things beyond me, which I thought were me. And the truth was, the spirit in me has always been safe. But while I thought I was something else, uh, um, there was an advert or an advertisement on the television in Britain many years ago for someone who had some sort of sore on her lip. And part of the advert, and, and the cream would take away the sore on your lip. And you would see her with this motorcycle helmet cycling and at the swimming pool and at the gym and at the office because she was so ashamed at having this tiny thing wrong with her lip that she had to wear the motorcycle helmet. And this is what I've learned as I, being identified with my body. When I look at my body and, and feel ashamed about anything of it, it's because I, I've mistaken myself for a piece of physical matter. And it's the same when I'm identified with my job. Someone criticizes my work. I'm not the piece of work I've done. I'm not even any intellectual ability or expertise. Those are just tools I've been using. I'm not the, the instrument. I'm the person using the instrument. I'm not those things. I'm not the country. I'm not my strange mixed up history of nationalities. I'm not, those are not me. That's where things have been, but it's not me. And I now know that my mother is safe, even on days she can't see it. I know that the person she really is, is safe, which is why it's not broken. There is nothing even broken. There is a journey happening there. There are some experiences happening there. My sponsor is... He won't call himself a mystic, but everyone calls him a mystic, whatever being a mystic means. And he says, you chose this particular visit to the planet because there must have been some lesson you wanted to learn. Now, I'm not a theologian, so I'm not going to comment on whether that accords with any traditional teaching. <laughs> But it makes sense to me. I've spent a lot of my life in recovery trying to stop other people 
from having whatever journey on the planet they're supposed to have, thinking that there is something wrong with human emotion. If anyone is feeling anything, there is a problem right now which we need to solve. We need to be happy, happy, happy. Uh, and I've learned it's fine for me to have a full range of human emotions and it's fine for the person I'm with, the people I'm with, to have a full range of human emotions. A friend of mine went on a course with um, a, a spiritual teacher and psychologist who said during the course we're going to be bringing up some very difficult material and I need you not to be hugging each other. I need you not to do that so you can actually feel something without other people trying to take it away or distract you with physical affection. And it was fascinating because uh, I was brought up to, it's the Western mentality of don't have anything wrong with you. If you have something wrong with you, get over it quickly. If you can't get over it quickly, keep your mouth shut about it. If you have something wrong with you, if you can't get over it quickly, if you refuse to keep your mouth shut about it, please go and do it somewhere else. And if you insist on staying, have the grace to look ashamed. And Al-Anon, for me, has been the antidote to that. Going to meetings where people at the beginning, they go around the room saying, how, how do you feel today? And someone saying, today I'm depressed and anxious and upset and angry. And then 19 other descriptive words. And then everyone says, thank you. <laughs> Which I think is wonderful. Um, to forgive people in step four, I needed to drop all of my judgments. And to drop my judgments, I needed to drop my analyses. To drop my analyses, I needed to drop my perceptions of what was going on. Our old ideas, it tells me on page 58, uh, need to be let go of. Why? Because they avail us nothing. Our efforts avail us nothing if we don't let go of the old ideas. And the image someone gave to me was if you have um, a bunch of balloons attached to the ground with a hundred pieces of string and you cut 99, but there's one left, the balloons will still remain attached to the ground. It's the hundredth balloon. It's the hundredth piece of string which releases all of the balloons. And so in my step four, I don't just get people to write and read out. I get them to say the prayers on the top of page 67. Um, God save me from being angry because I am the one who is in trouble. This is a sick person, i.e. this is a person who is today maybe cut off from the higher power. How can I be helpful? Footnote, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Mind your own business. Thy will be done. 
and to withdraw all of the judgments by withdrawing my allegiance to my perception of reality. Because my perception of reality is not what is actually going on. It's the film I'm projecting against the blank wall of reality. Reality is just a great big white wall which I'm telling a story about. And that's why it's legitimate to withdraw the story. I withdrew the story about you and I started to see real live people there. But that wasn't all. Two more things and then I'm going to um, wind down. Um, I needed to make amends to every, uh, to everyone for everything. To leave no stone unturned. No ill, however small, unamended. There, were, there was a 20 franc note I stole in 1981 and I needed to do something in my step nine about that 20 franc note that I stole. I couldn't even remember if I had returned it at the time because I felt guilty at the time. But I needed to do something about that. When I still had one amend left, one amend, one harm, where I had not done my utmost to straighten out the past, I still felt like I had before a lot better, a lot happier, a lot calmer, but fundamentally the same. I made the last amend. I went for a run. I said to my higher power, if there is anyone I've missed, show me. I came back from the run, no names. And all the lights went on. And I realized I'd been spending my whole life in a form of darkness that I couldn't even see because it was the fabric of my world. And for the first time in my life, everybody around me, I went to an AA meeting and I realized I was in a room of human beings and I was amazed because I had not realized what human beings were. I was, there's an Emmett Fox story about a girl who's watering a garden with a garden hose and there's no water coming out and she needed to take her foot off the hose for the water to come out. My foot was on the hose the whole time through two things judgment and unamended harms, unfinished business. And then the business of the real business of living started. And my life is very simple today. I get up in the morning, I say to my higher power, what would you like me to do today? Occasionally this forward planning, but not a lot. And the things that I do today fall under three headings. Heading number one, I need to do things that look after my life. Otherwise, I can't be any good to anyone. I would love to quote an AA member from Glasgow on this point, but I'm not allowed to swear and it loses its impact. Oh no, you really don't want the Glaswegian version. Um, the, 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 the state version is you're of no good to anyone if you're in a terrible state yourself. Um, put your own oxygen mask on before helping the child or insane adult next to you. <laughs> 
Second thing that I'm doing during the day, fulfill my obligations. I don't have a purpose in my life. God is in charge of my purpose. I have tasks delegated by my higher power. Sometimes it will be go to work. Sometimes it will be work when I'm at work. <laughs> Sometimes it will be cook the dinner for my other half. Sometimes it will be go and visit my mother. Sometimes it will be answer the phone to my sponsees. Sometimes I'll get an email from someone I've never met before in Israel saying, can you do a Skype chat? And I say to my higher power, Skype? Really? And my higher power says, check your bank account. So I checked my bank account and said, shall I come? So I did. I didn't judge this. I just asked and did what I was told. I, I, I don't need to look after what you think about me, what I think about me, how you treat me, what I want, what I need, or my money. God is there for that. I need to take care of the tasks that God delegates to me today, and the task that I've just been delegated is to shut up. So I'm going to stop the formal part of this right now. Thank you for listening. My name is Tim, um, I'm an alcoholic and an addict and many other things. Uh, I've been in AA for over 25 years, since I was 21. And I've been going to Al-Anon or reading Al-Anon literature or talking to Al-Anon people for 23 years. And one of my great mentors in Al-Anon is uh, a Jesuit priest from Oakland in California called Father Tom Darby. If you can get tapes of his, they're amazing. Uh, he says that he came into recovery from alcoholism because of his alcohol use, and he joined Alamon in 1978 because he was angry. <laughs> Hands up who is angry or has been angry. <laughs> um, there are a lot of addicts and alcoholics in my life. Um, I grew up in a family where the alcoholics and addicts were there, but they're drinking and their using was, and their acting out, was hidden. Um, my father, God rest his soul, was likely a sex addict, but everything was hidden, everything was happening somewhere else. All we knew was that the money was going somewhere, and it wasn't gambling, and it wasn't drinking. So what was it? Um, that the missing piece in the crossword puzzle is pretty clear. Um, uh, there were lots of alcoholics around me. I went to a boarding school, um, so in an enclosed environment. And uh, there were lots of alcoholics there in positions of power. Um, I've 
tended in my life to be attracted to alcoholics and addicts in various ways. Sometimes they seem a little more alive than ordinary people. There is a connection to something beyond that they find in addiction. And I couldn't find it myself. I needed to connect to something through them. So alcoholics, addicts, very attractive. Um, and because I've been in recovery for 25 years, um, I'm surrounded by alcoholics and addicts every day. I do a lot of service in my main fellowship. So I'm surrounded by alcoholic behavior there. And uh, over the years, I've sponsored hundreds of people. So I'm presented with alcoholic behavior there. And the first sign, um, I'm going to talk about step one today. Why I need step one today. Um, <coughs> I don't know if any of you have had the experience of getting a phone call or if you use text, getting text, if you use email, getting an email, and you see the name and immediately your stomach starts to turn over and you don't know what they've said yet, but there is this immense sense of threat. And... Have any of you had the experience when you have a brief conversation with someone for two minutes and you spend the rest of the day <laughs> thinking about the conversation and planning what you're going to say next time there is contact? Because this is too important to allow God to inspire you in the moment. So you need to plan very carefully to stop whatever it is happening. Um, that sense of being hooked into someone else's drama and self-destruction and addiction, um, it's a drug in itself. That is my drug. And Beneath my addiction to other people's addiction is, there was a moment yesterday, I went to an Al-Anon, an AA convention yesterday, and I came back to the hotel, and I was tired, um, I'd been with people all day, and I lay down on the bed, and there was a sense of emptiness. And that was the thing that I'd always run from, the sense of what happens if I allow myself to go to that empty place beyond everything. And now I know how to go into that place and to stay there in that darkness until the stars come out. And my whole life, I've been running away from darkness without enough patience to wait for the stars to come out and sitting instead 
staring at light bulbs <laughs> and getting my eyes burned out by the light bulbs because that instant light is dangerous and I need the light from beyond and I only get that when I become still. Um, but I have to go through a period of darkness to get there and let my higher power hold me until everything calms down. And then I'm alright. Um, there are some rules that people have in Western society, and maybe these rules operate in Israel as well. I don't know Israel well enough. But there are enough Americans here you may have been infected by <laughs> the American disease. Uh, the first rule of Western society is don't have anything wrong with you. The second rule of Western society if there is something wrong with you, get over it quick. <laughs> I.e., within a few days. You know, when you share at a meeting about something, and then one week later, you're still sharing about the same thing, and everyone says, That was last week! Haven't you gotten over it yet? <laughs> The third rule of Western society is if you've got something wrong with you and you can't get over it quick, shut up about it. Don't tell anyone. Fourth rule, if you must talk about it, <laughs> go somewhere else. Uh, if you can't get over it, if you won't go somewhere else, if you have, uh, uh, if you must talk about it, at least have the grace to look ashamed. And this programming is within me at cellular level, it is in the cells. So I grew up in a house where no one is allowed to have anything wrong with them. And I had to pretend my whole life there was nothing wrong with me. And as an adult, that switched. And I would panic if anyone was in front of me with a problem. If you have a problem, I have a problem. If you're unhappy, I am unhappy. I need to stop you from being unhappy so that I can relax. So being unable to let other people be broken, be damaged, be unhappy for decades. Um, and this is where my, um, my Alanonism, um, my Anonism comes in is different coping mechanisms with being surrounded by addiction and what looks like threat. Um, the first one is uh, 
bulldozer. And the bulldozer uh, goes through the world not interested in what is there. I have a plan. The plan is going to be implemented. If you don't get out of the way of the bulldozer, you will be flattened. So there is no knowledge of other people. There is no interest in other people. There is a plan. And the plan is always this. I heard um, a priest in uh, Al-Anon many years ago say, I thought I could achieve security through order. If my world was neat, if my world was tidy, if there was a schedule, if there was a budget, <laughs> and everything was under control, I would be safe and nothing could get me. And so this is where the bulldozer comes in, because as uh, an anonic I don't know how you're going to translate anonic. Okay. <laughs> As an anonic, um, uh, I learned how to become efficient and effective to make up for the fact that other people were inefficient and ineffective. So I could do my job, I could do your job, I could do both at the same time and still have time to worry. <laughs> um, my other features of the bulldozer um, is my eye is always on the horizon. When I'm in my addiction, my eye is on the horizon. The danger coming over the hill the tiny little sign that someone, someone's addiction is getting worse, not better. They miss a meeting. Why have they missed a meeting? What is going to happen if they miss them? And then I see five years' time, ten years' time. <laughs> what happens then? Always looking into the distance. And uh, I've got some uh, very close friends in recovery, and one of them... Uh, relapsed very badly on drugs and alcohol 11 years ago and got sober and clean 8 years ago and I've noticed in conversations with this friend sometimes um, he will say something which indicates he, he's angry with AA or he doesn't want to take Swansea phone calls and my mind says he's going in the wrong direction and I realize sometimes I've stopped breathing when a deer or another frail animal is in the woods and it hears a noise it stops <laughs> and it stops breathing as if it moves the wolf will hear it and so I can watch today for when I go and I realize that I've spotted a danger and I need to pay attention very carefully um, or they will get you and I'll notice that detail 
the sign that something is going wrong in someone else's recovery, and I stopped listening to anything else they had said. <laughs> and my mind immediately starts saying, how can I persuade this person to turn the ship in the right direction? And this is where the other, the second feature of my Alanonism comes in. So we've had the bulldozer. Now we have the controller. Now the controller is slightly different. It looks like bulldozing, but the focus is not on my plan for order and security. My focus then is to make you well, to have all of your emotions packed away so that you are now emotionally neat and tidy. How are you? Everything is fine. That's the ideal position for the controller. So you, you don't want people in front of you with the full range of human emotions. You want a doll with a smile on, on its face. Uh, and you want this person to be efficient, you want this person to be effective, you want this person to fulfill all of the tasks that you have delegated to this person. <laughs> and if only they will follow the script, the plan is fine. And so my tendency in this situation is to treat other adults like they are six-year-old children. Now, the reason this is difficult to recognize as a problem is that temporarily it works. Temporarily, I can get people to do what I want them to do. But it's like cats have no attention span <laughs> whatsoever. You can get them to sit still for four seconds. But after that, they notice something and they're running somewhere else. And then I run after the cat. <laughs> uh, but it produces resentment, it produces fear, and it stops people growing up. It stops people from taking responsibility. And I've done this with sponsees, but when a sponsee is very new, the sponsee is in recovery for two weeks, for four weeks, for six months. When they have a problem, you do need to give them the tool. You do need to give them the solution. But when you've been sponsoring someone for five years, or they have been in recovery for 10 years, and they phone up and they say, today I'm full of fear. If I start providing a solution at this point, what have we been doing for the last 10 years? Why have I shown you how to do a fear inventory? Why have I pointed the way to God if every time you're frightened, you come to me and I tell you something that you know already? And this is the controller. When I take responsibility for things which are your responsibility, 
and I create, I create, I make other people into children. Um, the third uh, type of response um, to alcoholics and addicts is um, uh, the victim. Now the victim, when I'm playing the victim, um, I feel like I'm the cause of all of your negative emotion. So if you feel bad, I feel guilty. If you're shouting, it is because I've done something wrong. Um, uh, if I do... If I do a piece of work, and the piece of work is criticised, my stomach feels as though it weighs a thousand kilograms and then hits the floor. And I can't, but I know the rest of the day is gone. All I will think about is the thing that I have done wrong. And the victim, rather than being affected in a thousand ways, a thousand small ways, by the thousand small things that go on around me. Um, my mind looks for certain types of events and then is massively affected by those. And what my mind looks for is criticism, judgment, anger. And I will be affected by these things a thousand times more than a normal person. The last thing is um, the, the doormat. And the doormat um, Imagine putting your hand on a hot stove and then you look at your hand and it, it is now red, it is burned, it is covered in blisters and you feel nothing. And someone says to you, why, why are you doing this to yourself? Um... Even years into AA, I had a, I had a friend who relapsed on pills, and there was this friend one morning in a terrible state. He said, "Can you come over?" I immediately dropped everything. I had plans for the day, but I dropped everything, and he says, "On the way." <laughs> On the way, can you stop by the, the chemists and buy me this pill with this ingredient? And for this, this was like 17 years sober. For a moment, I almost went to the chemists. I felt very proud of myself for not going to the chemists, but I didn't turn around and go home. 
This is called a slip. <laughs> so when they have the slip, I have the slip. <laughs> but all of the behaviour comes in uh, because the fear is if I stop supporting the alcoholic and the addict, it's actually going to get worse. So I need to stop. I need to provide love and support. Um, I was told by my sponsor, and actually, I'm going to go back. Um, I had a good, clear six or seven years without any serious Al-Anon slips between 10 years in recovery and 16 years in recovery. My best friend relapses, and I immediately do everything... <laughs> that I've been telling other people for the previous six years not to do. And I did not see, I could not see it. It was extraordinary. And what my sponsor said to me once I told the truth was that if you stop him from hitting his rock bottom, he will die. If you step back and allow him to hit the rock bottom, he may die, but he may recover. Um, I've sponsored in AA people who are rich and it's very rare for them to get sober because there is a safety net to catch them and it's the people where there's no safety net to catch them who hit the rock bottom so I've got to not be the safety net um, the safety net, being the safety net, this is the doormat. Being the safety net may stop them from ever getting well. And it will take me into hell with them. So I needed to save the only life I can save, which is my own. And the first time someone said to me, the only life you can save is my own, my reaction was, you mean I do not have a global mission <laughs> to save anyone? If my life is the only life I can save, what's the point? There's no point in my life being saved. There is only a point if I can save other people. And this is the point about the darkness. You have to sit in the darkness before the millions and millions of stars come out. And the stars are enough. Um, one of the problems I had philosophically after many years in AA 
was that um, I started to ask myself, uh, what is the point in life? What is the point in existence? What is the point in my life? And the answer, funnily enough, came from my other half, who said, can you not just look at the universe and be amazed? <laughs> just, there's a wonderful line in the big book, we were amazed before we were halfway through. And simply to be alive, to be amazed, is enough. Um, there is a line in a poem where the poet says, you do not have to walk on your knees through the desert 100 miles repenting. <laughs> and this was a surprise. This was news. <laughs> um, a lot of my life, I felt like I was walking on my knees. If you've ever tried to walk on your knees, there is a lot of effort and you can't get very far very quickly. It hurts, and it's still your fault. You can't get rid of the guilt. Um, ultimately, my step one in the Anon programs is to say, I'm trying to control things I cannot control, and have no business controlling. And if I carry on, this will kill me. And I want to change. Um, does anyone have any questions about step one? Yes. But, so the, I'll repeat questions. That's being recorded, right? Yeah, okay. So the first, my first Al-Anon personality type is the bulldozer, which is the image is clear. The controller is very much focused on getting the other person to behave the way I want them to behave. The victim is affected by everything going on around me, but with the volume turned up. And uh, the fourth one is the doormat. So everyone is walking all over you, and for a while you feel nothing, until you realize all of your bones are broken. <laughs> because everybody has been walking all over you. Any other questions? What do you say to long-term sponsors who call and say they're here? Um, first of all, I try and be gentle. <laughs> because... Yeah, sorry. The question is, how do you respond to, I'll broaden the question. How do you respond to sponsees who have been in the program for a long time, but who call with very basic emotional difficulties? 
Um, I explain very carefully what is going on. I'll say, I can do for you what you cannot do for yourself, but I will not do for you what you can do for yourself. And I think that you have enough tools to start working on this problem, and you take your tools, apply them to this problem, take it as far as you can, and then if you have any questions, then ask, and if you just want to share, come to my home group, we'll go for dinner afterwards, you share over dinner, <laughs> but telephone calls, in the middle of the working week, business is business. So with sponsees, there are two types of, actually there are three types of interaction. The first type is business. So you have your role as sponsee, I have my role as sponsor. The second type of interaction is just general chatting general sharing. You need to let out everything that is inside. There is a space for that, but I don't take up time in the business part of the day for that. You have to come to my home group. We'll do that face to face and we can interact naturally. The third type is friendship. Beware. <laughs> um, with my sponsees, um, maybe over the years I've tried to become friends with a handful of them, and almost always it's ended in disaster. Because there ends up being a conflict between my role as sponsor and my role as friend. And as a sponsor, I need to be able to say things that the other person does not want to hear. And I cannot have the conflict in me. Do I say this or do I and risk the friendship or do I prioritize the friendship and threaten the sponsorship relationship? Now, when I know that that is happening, it's hard, but I can do it. I can say to, to a sponsee, I've got one sponsee who I class as a, 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 a close friend. The others are uh, fellowship friends. It's a different, uh, we, we get to know each other, we hang out, we go for dinner together, we go on AA trips together, but the inner circle I can't have sponsees in the inner circle. I've, I've got one. It's an unusual relationship, and that works, but it is the absolute exception. Um, but the real danger when you've got a sponsee who is on the inner circle is that you will censor what you're saying subconsciously. So you don't even know that you are holding back. You don't know what you don't know. Something inside you is protecting the friendship, 
And the reason this is so dangerous is sometimes it is only the sponsor who has the courage to say, you're completely wrong. You are dangerous to yourself and others. And if they are relying on you to be the person to be the final warning, and you're, you can't fulfill that role because you're the friend, and you don't even know that you can't fulfill that role, you are jeopardizing their life. So I'm very, very protective of my inner circle. And uh, I had a friend two years ago who um, uh, was between sponsors. Um, he'd had a problem with a sponsor. It was a legitimate problem. It was unreasonable for him to continue. He hadn't found a new sponsor. And... I helped him for a few months. But in every single conversation we had, we made it clear, I am putting on my sponsor hat. <laughs> and then at the end of the sponsorship conversation, I am taking off my sponsor hat, I am putting on the friend hat. So occasionally I need to bend the rule, but I am very careful, very deliberate how I do it, because the one thing, uh, with alcoholics and uh, drug addicts, the fact that it's going to kill them is very obvious. With other addictions, it is not so obvious, but it is just as real. And what you do not want to have on your hands is a situation where someone relapses and stays relapsed, or where they have a nervous breakdown, or where they commit suicide, and to think, did I have a part in that? Because you don't get over that easily or quickly. So I'm very protective of those roles for my own sanity and my own conscience. Any other step one thoughts before it gets more cheerful after step one, I promise. I'm wondering if you ever worked with a nun who didn't relate to any of the work of the So, so the question is, so that it's clear on the tape. So we've got the four types, which are not an exhaustive list. There are surely other types. Bulldozer, controller, victim, doormat. What if someone doesn't relate to any of those? I've never found someone who doesn't relate to any of those. Uh, sometimes it takes a while. But all the person knows is I'm numb, or I'm frightened, or I'm obsessed. But there is always a way in 
with the excessive emotion, uh, excessive emotional responses, you're looking at the victim one. With numb, you're looking at doormat. And sometimes it takes a long time for um, it takes a long time to defrost an Alanol. Sometimes on the packet it says defrost in the refrigerator overnight. And that's not going to work for a big joint of lamb. You need to put it on the balcony in the sun. So with, with the Anons, um, especially if they come into this Anon, that Anon by accident, without really wanting to, it can take a long time to, to thaw out and to realize what is going on. So then just wait. It, whatever needs to rise to the surface will rise to the surface. There's a great line in the big book about the stories where it says, we hope you pause when reading one of the stories and say, yes, I felt like that. Or, well, I can't remember the next thing it says. Let me look up. Um, Or more important, yes, I felt like that. Or most important, yes, I believe this program can work for me too. So it's identification and inspiration. I want. To, may I tell? I know we're going slightly over time. I have one step one story, which might help with this. Hmm? Oh, I have five more minutes. Okay, good. Um, actually it's two stories <laughs> one of the one of the ways that Alanon got me was when I identified by accident so I'm listening consciously my mind is filtering out my mind is holding everyone and everything at arm's length and is saying, I don't like you, I'm not interested in you, I am not like you. And then there is a story, and I cannot deny that it is me. <laughs> One of them, I heard someone say, I think it was on a tape, that when she was on a plane, when the plane was taking off, she would stop reading her book and concentrate <laughs> on the plane taking off. And as soon as she was comfortable that the plane was safely in the sky, <laughs> she returned to the book. Now, I had been doing this my whole life. I had not even noticed I was doing it. And what was going on was that I felt that by my, the power of my concentration, <laughs> I was keeping the plane in the sky. <laughs> you can, now, 
You can't, if you do that, you cannot deny that you do it. You know that you do it. Um, the last step one story. Um, and this is why Alanonism is so tricky. Um, in ancient Egypt, I don't know how much you know about the religion of ancient Egypt, um, but one of the beliefs was that the sun would travel across the sky during the day, and then the sun, and the sun was a god, this, this god's sun, sun god, would pass under the earth and go through lots of trials and difficulties and basically hell every night and if the sun god successfully went through these trials and difficulties the sun would rise the next morning and so far so good but the priests in the temples did not trust that the sun god would have the ability to pass under the earth through these trials and through these difficulties. So there were prayers, there were rituals, hundreds of people involved in making sure that the sun god successfully passed through these trials and difficulties. And this isn't the crazy bit. The crazy bit is when the sun came up the next morning, they would say, phew, thank heaven we did that work, because otherwise the sun wouldn't have risen. So the system reinforces itself. So you, you start to believe that if I stop controlling, everything is going to fall apart. The fact it is not worse is because I am controlling. <laughs> um, and this is why we'll talk about step two in the next se session. Um, what happens if I let go? Terrifying. <laughs> Which is why you really need to be done controlling before you are going to be ready for step two. Let's have a break. So, um, step two came to believe I'm not going to try and read that out. Um, no, I'm not going to try and read that out. I'm not even sure if it's a step or a tradition. Um, it's a step. So came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, I didn't argue my way into step two. When I'm in trouble, um, I can't think my way into step two 
either. Uh, what I'm going to say is probably a little harsh, but there we have it. Uh, it might be harsh. When I'm in trouble, I have a choice. Either I believe there is a solution, or I don't believe there is a solution. Someone in AA said to me a long time ago, if there is any problem to which there is no solution, I might as well give up now. So, I can't hold on to any individual fear. Hmm? Fear. If there is one thing that is not allowed to happen in my universe, one little piece of fear will fill the entire room with fear. It's like poison gases. The gas will spread to fill the room within seconds. Fear will spread to fill my room within seconds. And my fear is always about this. There is an event which is not allowed to happen. So sanity, to me, in step two, what I'm going for is a world in which anything can happen and everything is allowed. Um, and my job is to believe that sanity is possible, not to work out intellectually whether sanity is possible. Step two is not an intellectual exercise. It's an extension of step one, where I say, I'm in such trouble, I cannot live the way I have been living, there must be a better way. Now why would I believe that there is a better way if there is one person that tells me there is a better way, that is enough. I do not need more than one person. If there are ten, that helps. <laughs> if there are several million, that helps. But if there is just one, there are going to be issues in my life, and therefore in your life too, is a problem. There are going to be problems where almost everyone will say, that's just horrible, you have to put up with that. Um, I'm from England and some things have been happening politically which have divided the country in two in the last few years. And there has been a lot of emotional disturbance. Um, and there was a vote two years ago. And I know hundreds of people 
and I only know two people who voted differently than me out of the hundreds of people and none of my friends know people who voted the other way we didn't know that the country was divided until the vote took place and then you suddenly discover that there are whole worlds of people that think something completely different from you and they look totally normal they seem to function normally they're able to drive cars <laughs> and yet they vote a particular way um, and the whole country collectively went into nervous breakdown and a similar thing happened in America 18 months ago um, and maybe what has happened in Great Britain and what has happened in America uh, uh, they're phenomena which are not unfamiliar in Israel as well um, and my emotional disturbance over these situations I looked around at all of my friends and everyone in recovery was disturbed in the same way some people had something of a solution um, but I went to a conference of AA and Al-Anon in America on the day a particular important person stepped into a particular important role in another country and I was talking to lots of people I was talking to people who were 30 years sober who were 40 years sober who had an emotional problem that day who were working their programs very hard in order not to crumble and then I met my friend Kurt <clears throat> I've known Kurt for years just a little bit but I've known him for years and I said to him a little voice said have breakfast with him so um, I asked him to have breakfast with me and I asked him a question and an hour and a quarter later the answer finished <laughs> I did not have a chance to say anything during this hour and a quarter but it was strange because the question I asked him at the beginning was with everything that is going on politically, socially in this country are you okay? and it was clear from his answer that none of this was touching him he knew precisely what was going on he probably shared the same political views as me however he was untouched by it and I could see in his eyes there was no fear 
I needed someone in front of me to be fine in this situation for me to realize that he was sane and the rest of the world was nuts. <laughs> there are times when everyone is nuts and truth is not decided by majority vote. <laughs> now what the group does is decided by majority vote, <laughs> but truth, sometimes groups act out of fear, sometimes countries act out of fear, but truth doesn't care. <laughs> truth remains true no matter what I think, no matter what I feel, and my agreement with truth does not add to the truth. My agreement is not a valuable contribution to the truth. If the sun is shining and I go out and say to the sun, I agree that you're shining. <laughs> The sun doesn't say, thank you, I can now carry on shining because you have agreed that I may shine. <laughs> Sometimes I'll present a solution to a sponsee. And the sponsee will say, that sounds like a good idea, I agree with that. And my response is, the solution is still a solution, even if you don't agree with it, <laughs> even if you don't like it. So step two is a very simple choice. Am I going to trust you or am I going to trust me? And when I say me, I mean the monkey mind, the mind that is always thinking, perceiving, analyzing, plotting, the mind that thinks it sees things out there, it is not seeing things out there, it is projecting things onto out there. When I see anything happening, it is a white screen that I am telling a story about, and then I think the story is happening to me. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a business meeting in Essanon or Alanon or whatever, or a group conscience, and uh, there's some tension, there's some argument, and the next day, Everybody calls everyone else <laughs> to talk about the business meeting or the group conscience. And from what everyone says, you would not believe you were in the same meeting. Because everybody is telling a different story about the same event. And if you read history books, you'll discover the same thing about what happened in this city in this year and a hundred witnesses give completely different stories about what happens or what do you believe who knows the truth is not decided by majority vote 
Um, so I trusted a couple of years ago, a year and a bit ago, the look in my friend Kurt's eyes over my extensive analysis <laughs> of the situation, and I decided it was possible to live on the planet as the planet is and be comfortable. So step two is not something that happened back in 1993. Step two is something that happens whenever I have a problem. Um, and a problem, there are two types of problem. <laughs> I like classifications, I like lists. Two types of problem. Type of problem, number one, I am disturbed and I don't know how not to be disturbed. Problem number two, I don't know what to do. There is no other type of problem. I haven't found another type of problem. Actually, they're connected because the reason I don't know what to do <laughs> is because I'm disturbed. So it, it goes both ways. I don't know what to do, so I'm disturbed, but I'm disturbed, so I don't know what to do. The gold is at the bottom of the river. And it is because there is so much mud in the river, I can't see the gold. So everything has to be still. Uh, and the only thing which is stopping things from being still is me <laughs> and my constant storytelling <laughs> about everything that is going on. I don't know if in Israel you have a 24-hour news station where, where they have on these 24-hour news stations, they have this thing called a ticker where the news runs across the bottom of the screen. And on very sophisticated channels, there will be one line with the business news, a second line with the sports news, a third line with the weather. And my problem is that I can't see the picture because I'm looking at the news ticker at the bottom, giving all of the narratives about what is going on on the screen, and if you've ever watched one of these news channels and you watch it for long enough, you'll realize that the news ticker, the story at the bottom of the screen, repeats over and over and over, but it looks like news each time, but it's not. It's the same story again. Uh, I don't know why they call it Hadashot, because it's not Hadash, it's the same thing, yet yeah, this could be the news from five years ago, it could be the opinions from ten years ago. So, step two is when I move from watching the stories in my head to seeing what is really there, and being willing to say, maybe my stories are untrue. Maybe there is a better way. 
maybe there is a different way to look at this. And in step three, very simply, it is a decision to implement what I've already decided in steps one and two. Step one, I do not like how I have been living. I do not like how I have been seeing. I do not like how I have been feeling. Step two, there is a better way. Step three, right. Let's get on with it. But there is a little more to it than that. Um, the reason I have a problem at all is because wherever I am physically in the world, if I'm looking with my eyes, it feels like I am the center of the universe. So wherever I am, I am at the center. And I think if my eyes, if I were some sort of creature with my eyes on a stalk coming out, <laughs> looking in different directions, maybe my, percep my perception would be different, but I am at the center. And this is the problem. There is a line in here on page 62. It said, first of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. It didn't work. Well, we know this. This is why we're in the room. If it did work, you'd be out there working it. <laughs> but it doesn't, so you're in here. But what does it mean to play God? It means being at the center of my world, being at the center of the universe. And I need to have God as the center of my universe. And I have a simple relationship with God. Uh, in the big book, it gives you some images to deal with. Uh, the first one is God was going to be our director. Now, director in English has two main meanings. In, in contemporary English, in modern English. The first one is uh, a director of a business. So you would be the employee of the business and God is the director of the business. Or people will think the director of a play or a film and you are the actor. Now here is the first really new and really interesting idea in step three. If I'm the actor and God is the director, it means that in any scene, I have a role to play, I have actions to take, I have words to say. The actor does not make up the words to say. He asks the director for the script, <laughs> and all he has to do is deliver the script. If I'm playing Macbeth in a production of the play Macbeth, and I'm having an argument with Lady Macbeth, 
who, by the way, could probably handle a couple of steps. <laughs> there is a little bit of tension between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. <laughs> He's not killing people anywhere near quick enough for her. <laughs> She's like, if you can't do the job, let me. Just, I will handle it. Um, if my job is to play Macbeth, I'm still the actor. I don't become Macbeth. So I don't need to become emotionally involved in who gets to die next. I'm, I have to remember that I'm just the actor. And I've had situations in service in AA where there is enormous tension between me and someone else, where they are furious with me or with, and this is the truth, they're not furious with me, they're furious with words I have said, they're furious with actions I have taken, they're furious with what my character has done. Lady Macbeth is furious with Macbeth, not with the actor. So in a marriage, in a sponsor-sponsee relationship, whatever is going on on the surface is going on between the two actors on the stage. But there is always a second relationship which is going on, which is there is a connection between the two actors on the stage. So there are two relationships at once. There is a relationship between your soul and their soul, and there is a relationship between your role and their role. And there are times when I have to be brutal in the role on the surface and yet underneath <coughs> my soul is saying to their soul look at what our characters are doing to each other stay with me I keep mental eye contact with the other person's soul if I have to say something difficult and sometimes in service if I'm delegated a role if I'm given a role to do and then I have to delegate a task to someone else. I offer them the task to do, and they have the choice, do it or don't do it. But we're not in a negotiation. I'm not negotiating this, I'm telling you. <laughs> this is what is going to happen, and if you don't want to do it, I will find someone else to do it. This is a tough conversation. In a marriage, it might be, we are leaving for the airport at two. I am leaving for the airport at two. If you are on time, you can come. <laughs> if you are not, I am going anyway. It would be great if you joined me. <laughs> if you're not organized enough, that's your problem. I'm leaving it too. 
but not to be so involved in the character I'm playing that any anger comes out. I maintain eye contact with the spirit inside and say, whatever happens to our characters, I still love you. Um, there was a, a clip on YouTube of uh, an American comedian called Nadia Ginsburg who does these uh, impressions of Cher and Madonna and other pop singers. And uh, uh, there was a sketch with Madonna and the daughter, Madonna's daughter, and they had this horrible argument. And the, Madonna says to the daughter, she steps back and says, you and I are not arguing. Mummy's ego is arguing with your ego. And this is the thing to remember in step three. If I turn my will and life over to God, I stop identifying with the characters I'm playing. So, whether in my case, uh, the characters are husband and son and brother and lecturer and teach and have a job, so the job that I do, neighbor, AA member, Al-Anon member, chair of this committee, member of that committee, all of these roles, if I identify with the role, uh, the show is over, <laughs> because I will defend that role, I will want that role to succeed. Maybe the role is not supposed to succeed. Um, in Tradition 6, it says we do not lend our name to an outside activity. So each of these roles, of husband, of son, of this, of that, they are all outside activities. So husband is a role I play, it is not who I am. And my job is simply to say to my higher power, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to believe? What do you want me to think? And just to play the role well, and then retreat back into who I really am. I heard someone say years ago that we're like these giant magnets that go through junkyards and all of this metal gets stuck to the magnet. And the job of recovery is to demagnetize, to stop being a magnet. So all the stuff falls off. <laughs> and this AA speaker said, and then you discover what you really are, which is a table lamp. <laughs> so you go from being this pile of wreckage to being a table lamp. You're just meant to shine, that is all, <laughs> and maybe, you know, do the laundry, do the dishes, 
take the children to school <laughs> as the lamb. <laughs> but that's who I really am. I get to play roles. I get to play characters. But I mustn't forget who I am. I'm made of the same substance as the universe. I did not create myself. <laughs> the universe created me. It was here first. <laughs> so I cannot look at me and say, there is something wrong with me. Otherwise I'm saying that the universe, God, created something defective. Um, uh, someone in AA, actually in Al-Anon as well, said to me once, you were, you were not created bad, you were created empty. So a... Uh, an olive tree is created perfect and whole and nothing else needs to be added to it for it to be an olive tree. It is already an olive tree. She said that everything in the universe is like that. It is created complete as it is. Now, you're not, we're not created, this man said, with anything wrong with us but we're created incomplete, and the job is to find our way to completion, which means the emptiness has to be filled up. And I always thought the emptiness would be filled up by getting something from the outside, by having everything organized outside perfectly, and then I will feel full and satisfied, and the truth in the realm of the spirit is that uh, the laws of physics are reversed. So that if something is empty physically, you need to pour something into it. And this is why alcoholics like me are the most primitive form of life because <laughs> we just pour something into ourselves hoping it will fill us up. Um, to fill me up, I need to give out. But what I need to give is light, not orders. Instructions. No, no orders, no instructions, just light. But to give light, I need to receive light first. And so my first job is to go to my higher power and say, fill me with light so I have something to give. Except the pipe which connects God to me is full of rubbish. <laughs> and the point of steps four, five, six, seven, eight... Nine <laughs> is to get rid of the rubbish so the light can flow through me out to you. Uh, a brief thing before we'll talk about steps four through nine in the third session, ten, eleven, and twelve in the fourth session. Um, but one thing about step four. Um, if you're a good 
Al-Anon like me, you will like nothing more than a workbook. A great, the thicker the workbook, the better. The, the thicker the workbook, the better. Um, the, the more questions there are to answer, the better. The more I can stare at the complexity within me, the better. Um, and this is not how I do inventory. In my case, it has to be incredibly simple. Um, my sponsor describes the ego as the bloated nothingness of self. Now, bloated, difficult word. So, if you take a roll of toilet paper and leave it in the rain, it will bloat. <laughs> That's bloated. Um, the bloated nothingness of self. So, it's nothing, but it fills the entire room. So, my, I've got to do inventory in such a way that I don't make the unreal more real. I've got to see through it and realize it's nothing. I've used inventory badly in the past. And at the end of the inventory process, it feels like I have a hundred times more problems than I started with. With books full of words. And that needed to stop. And that's why we have a small Sefer <laughs> Hakadol. That's why we have a small big book. <laughs> um, and so we're going to look at a very simple way of doing step four. Um, and we're going to look at simple ways of doing steps five, six, seven, eight, and nine so that you can breathe <laughs> and not have to buy more than one pad of paper. Should we have a break? One of the difficulties I have had over the years um, with the fact that I have problems which are solved by different fellowships is that I have been tempted to have my AA program here, my Al-Anon program here, my CODA pro program here, all of these different programs which then seem to conflict with each other, argue with each other, different methods, different lists, different inventories, and I'm not going to tell anyone how to do their recovery, but I will tell you how I, having found a, a path through this uh, wonderful range of fellowships, um, I use the structure of the step four in the big book, um, but I incorporate a lot of material from Al-Anon 
So the structure is AA, but the content is AA and Alamon and some other things I've learnt along the way. Um, so the can I ask before we get into the step four, how many of you have done a step four? Good, so about uh, just over half. And how many of you use the big book for that? And uh, what other, can I ask you, what other methods have you, have people used? Okay. Okay. So, I'm not saying that one method is better than another, I'm just telling you the one that I use. <laughs> so if that's useful, wonderful. If you do inventory another way and that works for you, don't mess with it. <laughs> it's fine. Um, but the inventory in the big book in AA, there are three obvious inventories and then there is a secret inventory. Um, the first inventory is the resentment inventory, the second is fear, the third is um, sexual relationships, intimate relationships, and the fourth is the harms list. Uh, the reason I say it's a secret one is because as you do your step four in the big book, you do write the harms, but they're written in different places. The harms to others are buried in a lot of other information. But on page 76 in step eight, it says, we have a list of harms of people we have harmed. We made it when we took step four. Uh, so it implies there's a little bit of tidying up of the harms from step four to produce the step eight list. Now the resentment inventory, resentment in modern British English is not a word that people really use. It's, ve it's very unusual. There are lots of words that I wouldn't say in front of delicate people, <laughs> some of whom may be present, but we don't use the word resentment. Um, it's reserved for very long-standing forms of low-level hatred. Now, we have that, but we often call it something else. But the resentment inventory is really an inventory based on everything that bothers me. It's any emotional disturbance when I'm feeling anything but peace. Now, I can be in pain and at peace. That's fine. So when my father died, I was in pain, but I was at peace when I was eight years in AA. Um, I was very ill. I didn't know if I was going to die. I was in huge physical pain, but I was 
at times at peace. So it's not an inventory of pain, it's an inventory of emotional disturbance, but most pain is accompanied by disturbance. It's, a, it's unusual to be in pain and at peace. That is a skill which is acquired very slowly. So really, the step four resentment inventory is really, its starting point is, where am I upset? Where am I disturbed? And the words it uses in English to access those feelings, because you've got to start with the feelings. Um, the words are, number one, resentment, angry, hurt, threatened, sore. <laughs> this is going to stretch the... I can't remember. I don't know what it says in the Hebrew. Sore or burned up. Um, grudge, injury, or where we had been interfered with, where something in the world is interfering with our lives. And a friend of mine in AA says, also write about all of the people you feel superior towards. This is a covert, a sort of hidden form of disturbance. It's a way of separating yourself from whole categories of people. And then we get into the interesting bit, which is why these people disturb us. So the first column is the people. The second column is what happened. Now, We've got to be careful that it is what happened and not my interpretation of what happened. I received an email from uh, a, a client. I work for agencies. They send me work. My work then goes to the agencies and within the agency they will check and proofread and review the work, and then the work goes to the end client. And I asked a question, a couple of questions, to this agency. And the question went all the way up the chain to the most senior person. And this senior person sent me an email back, and she copied everyone else in the agency on the email. A couple of you already know where this is going. And what happened was I had this immense emotional reaction to it because I felt that she was replying in such a way as to humiliate me or put me down in front of all of these other people and assert her authority over me. So she was more experienced, she was clever, and all of these things. And uh, the way she did it was to say that, uh, to imply that 
uh, I was stupid for even asking these questions, and the answers were so obvious that uh, she, she made it seem ridiculous that I was even asking. <coughs> and I had to be careful when doing inventory on this in the second column to say just what happened. So uh, what happened was a woman at an agency, column one. Column two, wrote an email, copied to other people, uh, giving an answer which involved uh, um, distortion or humour or something. It wasn't a straight answer, it was a twisted answer. There was exaggeration in the answer. That's all that happened. Someone wrote an email to some people in which there was exaggeration. So I've taken my interpretation out of it and realized, oh my God, just from this second column, I've got a huge emotional reaction that she's humiliating me, she's putting me down, she's making me look stupid. No, the event is this person is expressing herself with exaggeration and with humour and with some other things. So when I'm going through this with sponsees, their first attempt at the second column has got uh, speculation going on. So I didn't react to it. I didn't react to the event. I reacted to what I thought she was trying to do. I went behind the event to what was going on in her mind. And I've had so many conversations with people in which I say, do you have a certificate for mind reading? Where did you qualify as a mind reader? And people find it so difficult when I say, are you a mind reader, to give a clear answer, no. <laughs> Almost everyone thinks they have this special skill. Now, sometimes you're a little bit right. But I know from how often people think they can read my mind, I know the gap between what people think and what is really going on. So I know that's true the other way. So I get to strip out the speculation and just leave the fact and strip out the interpretation. She didn't humiliate me. She wrote an email and copied some other people. That she humiliated me, that would be an effect in the mind of the reader. I don't know what the other people in the agency thought or felt when reading this. Humiliation is not the event. It's what I think is going on in other people's minds. Again, it's interpretation. Uh, someone phoned me to go through some step four uh, a couple of years ago. And she said, second column, my boss always criticizes me. And I said, always. 
is every single thing she says a criticism? Well, no. How many times a day does she speak to you? Maybe 50. How many times a day does she criticize you? She said, maybe twice a week. <laughs> this is not always. Criticism is also Interpretation, yeah. I mean, in this case, what the person, the, what the boss was doing, and it's interesting you say that, is because what the boss was doing was disagreeing with her in a meeting. So it wasn't even a direct criticism. It turns out it was simply expressing a different point of view. I've written and I've had people write in step four. Second column, so-and-so, this person did not respect me. And you'd think, well, that's a terrible thing. We all want to be respected. Huh? Oh, that's sad. You're not to be respected. We all deserve respect. If you dig a little, you discover the event was, this person did not obey me. <laughs> this person believes something different than me. <laughs> this person disagrees with me. That is the fact. And I tell you, 19 out of 20 emotional disturbances drop at this point in the second column. When I stop speculating, I stop interpreting, I stop generalizing, you know, this happened once, therefore they think this the whole time, maybe, maybe not. And I stop personalizing. Um, if I can get to the facts, very often I think, Nothing has happened here. Anyway, but with some things, I'm still disturbed. And what the big book asks me to do is to say which area of me, of my life, is being affected. And there are seven areas. The first area is called pride. And pride is where I'm worried about what you think about me. The image I think you have of me. The picture in your mind of me. Self-esteem is where I'm worried about my own image of myself. You think you're great at your job. A criticism comes in and you think, Oh, I'm actually terrible at this. Your image of yourself has changed. Personal relations and sex relations, that's where I'm bothered because of what you are doing to me. Maybe directly, maybe indirectly. If it's in the intimate relationship, sex relations, sex relations, if it's any other relationship, personal relations. And then we have three more areas, which are ambitions, which is what I want, 
security, which is what I need. And the big book uses this old term, pocket books, which means purses or wallets, but that's really finance. So we now have seven areas. And pride, self-esteem, personal relations, sex relations, ambitions, security, and pocketbooks, finances, is the last one. And now, here is the amazing thing that I learned in AA. The reason I am disturbed is not because of what you have done or because of what has happened. I have compared what I think happened to a secret plan somewhere in my mind. I don't know the plan is there until something fails to follow the plan. And it's like uh, it's like having uh, a field with landmines where I don't know where the landmines are, except when you step on one of the landmines, I blow up. And so it looks like you're causing all of this, but I'm the one that put the landmines there. And those landmines are, the book calls it, little plans and designs. So playing God, God is supposed to be the one with the plans. My problem is that I play God and I have plans and designs. I have demands, I have expectations. So I've got to find out what the plans and designs, what the demands and expectations are in order not to be disturbed when something happens outside of it. So in this small resentment against the agency, which took two days for me to get over, it was so embarrassing. I was more embarrassed by my emotional disturbance than I was by the... <laughs> I, showed the I showed the email to a friend in AA who is sober four years, a couple of days later, and he said, it's not that bad. It's really, I mean, it's a bit off, but really, it's fine. And I'd spent the whole day thinking, I'm not going to work for this agency anymore. I'm going to put up a boundary. <laughs> and it was nothing. But the, the demands, pride, I want them to see me as the best worker. Self-esteem. If I were more perfect, no one could ever criticize me. Personal relations. If you're going to communicate, don't exaggerate, don't twist, don't distort, say it straight, don't involve emotion, don't involve manipulation. I have this whole script for how this woman was supposed to communicate. Um, 
no sex relations there, ambitions. Um, I want to be seen by them as the best worker amongst all of these. Uh, so, because I want more work, I want more position, I want, I want better work from them. And if they think I'm not as good, the work I get will not be as good. I will be lower down the system. Security. A lot of my money comes from this agency. So if they think there's something wrong with me, there's a real problem. Now the truth is they have offered me dozens of jobs since this event, and I can't take all the jobs because I have enough work already. There is not even a problem. But to be comfortable, I needed to get rid of those demands. And this is, this is how to get rid of resentment. So the first, the, yes, the, so the emotional disturbance is arising because the demands are not met. So, yes, my demands. So to get rid of the emotional disturbance, I need to get rid of the demands. And there are four ways to get rid of demands. <laughs> hmm? Do you answer that those those questions to them, the pride you fill out words yes. and you describe it? Yes. So with those seven areas, in the big book, it simply says which area is affected. Pride, self-esteem, and the rest. But at the bottom of the page, it says when we completed the list, we considered it carefully. So I consider it carefully <laughs> and write down the consideration. So why? I just, it's a simple question. Also, on page 67, it says, where were we self-seeking? And the self-seeking on page 67 is the demand. So I'm seeking something in the area of pride. I'm seeking for you to think a particular way of me. I'm seeking in self-seeking, self in self-esteem. I have this image I want to have of me. I give you a script in personal relations. I, it, all of these are forms of self-seeking. So I bring that self-seeking stuff to really understand why these things are being affected. Otherwise, I just remain a victim of these things, and I don't just want to be a victim. I need to find how I am creating this disturbance. So, there are four ways... Oh yes, question. Can I translate it? Uh, no, English, please. Uh, I can translate Okay. Yes, sir, can I How can I... Can I translate it? Yeah. So, I'll... Okay. So, a demand is where I command that something be a certain way. So like when the city authority sent out an order to say there are no bonfires on Lagba Omer, that is a demand. That is a command. And I take my demand that I get out of my step four 
and I do one of four things with them. Some demands are just nuts. <laughs> For instance, my demand, I'm a translator by profession. Hebrew is not one of the languages I hasten to add. But the, the ego demand is that I be seen as the best translator that works for this agency. Now that's just crazy. Why should I be the best translator? That is a demand I can just drop. There is no value to the demand. There's no sanity to the demand. Those just have to go. The second demand is our uh, second type of demand is where I uh, turn the volume down from a demand and turn it into a preference. And the way I did that with my, my other half uh, uh, has a very, uh, very uh, high level job in charge of the sexual health of the whole of London, uh, plus public health for two parts of London. So sometimes when my other half comes home, he is available emotionally. Sometimes he's not. He's been shouted at all day. <laughs> People have been horrible. He just needs to sit there quietly and say nothing. I would prefer attention but I'm not going to demand attention. I prefer, when I go to a restaurant, I prefer a certain dish. If they have the dish, marvellous. If they don't, I'll eat what they have. You know when you go to a friend's house, and whatever they cook is fine by you, and yet if a restaurant had the same dish, you would not eat it. But at a friend's house, you would. So... The second type of demand, you change it from a demand to a preference. So you're then fine when the demand is not met. The third type of demand, um, uh, sometimes you can take steps to make it happen. So when this, was this trip was arranged five or six weeks ago, whenever it was, uh, as you know, two months ago, the trip was arranged. I started to get disturbed because I thought, I don't know any modern Hebrew. I know three words in modern Hebrew. I'm going to a country where I... And I was emotionally disturbed. So I thought, I'm going to have to do something about this. So I get the books, I get the tapes, blah, 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 and I learn some Hebrew. <laughs> So rather than just um, being upset about the demand, do something about it. <coughs> so that's your legitimate demand. If I'm upset that I, that I never have any money, maybe I'm going to have to budget. Maybe I'm going to have to work harder. Maybe I'm going to have to stop spending money on rubbish, and then I will have some more money. So there are some things which are within my power to change. So I go from being a victim to being an active participant. Now, almost everything 
is either rubbish and I can drop it, or I turn the volume down from a demand to a preference, or I can work for it. Sometimes working for it is setting a boundary of some sort. Um, for instance, with certain people, the boundary is, uh, I don't like it when people shout. So I tell them, if you shout, I'm putting the phone down. If you want a conversation with me, it is without shouting. So those are your legitimate demands. If someone shouts, I'm still, I have a way of handling it. The fourth type is where it just sucks. So some things are just sad. Some demands you when when people die, when people get sick, the demand is don't be sick, don't die. You can't remove the demand from your programming. When you're physically hungry or physically in pain, you can't tell yourself stop feeling hungry. It do, it doesn't work. You can't remove the programming. But you can do three things. The, fir the first thing, I know everything is always in lists. Uh, I have whole departments of people in my head who are in charge of list making. Um, the first thing is to develop gratitude. So, there are lots of people in my family who died many years before they should have died. Siblings. So rather than being resentful that my brother is dead, to be grateful for the ones who are alive. Most of the people in my family are not available emotionally for a relationship of any sort. There is surface interaction, but there's no one there. With my mother, she is there a little. There is a lot that is blocked that I can't get to, but I'm grateful for what is there. I'm grateful for the life that there is. Part of my Al-Anon program, I have three pot plants at home which all look pot plants. I have three potted plants at home. And they look terrible. They're all the wrong shape. There are strange dead parts. I wanted to, I wanted to get rid of them. And my other half said, they're still alive. Why are you trying to kill what is alive? They look awful. But they're still alive, so we're keeping them. This is, this is 
active gratitude. You are grateful for the organs that do work. <laughs> and you don't worry about the organ that doesn't work. Uh, the second one is humility. The opposite of humility is entitlement. And entitlement is... Uh, there is a... Uh, an English fairy tale, I don't know if it exists in other languages, about a princess who sleeps on a mat on a hundred mattresses and there is a single pea under the bottom mattresses and she can feel the pea. This is entitlement, the idea that I should go through life, nothing bad should ever happen to me. Why? Because the rules that apply to you do not apply to me. So if I'm going to have the human experience, I need the humility to recognize that everything that is part of that could happen to me. And the third antidote to those things which are just horrible is courage, which is the strength to remain useful, cheerful, and kind, whatever happens. No complaining. Useful, cheerful, and kind. And you might be the only person in the situation trying to be useful, cheerful, and kind. Um, and then, so this is how to deal with the demands. That takes me 95% of the way towards getting rid of resentment. There is a remaining 5%, which is prayers at the top of page 67. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The prayers. Yes. 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 A little bit. Yeah. We haven't come to that. Oh. Yeah. This is we're still working on how to get rid of oh, the, the resentment. In the third yeah. Yeah. So sixty-six, sixty-seven is where I this is considering it carefully, considering the demands which are behind the disturbance, and then saying the prayers on sixty-seven, the most important one for me, God show me how to take a kindly and tolerant view. Ask a happy person. <laughs> um, the fourth column of the 
resentment inventory. May I just ask, can I run over this session five minutes or so to finish the step four in one go so we're not splitting it? Um, there are some questions on page 67 which are all really asking the same thing from a different angle. If you walk around the statue, you will see the same arms and legs from different angles, but it's the same arms and legs. So the questions, what am I frightened of, where am I self-seeking, where am I selfish, it's really coming at the truth of how I have been acting and thinking and believing in this situation. And my character defects, this is where I get my character defects, so where I'm wrong. And I'm looking for three types of things. First of all, beliefs. An example of a belief. To be okay, I need to be the best. It's an old belief. And then defects of thinking and defects of behaviour. Now, where does Al-Anon literature or other Anon literature come into this? Um, let me just... The way I use Al-Anon books is I will read maybe a page or two a day and I will note down any line, and I'll copy it into another book, any line which tells me what I'm doing wrong in a particular situation, where my belief is wrong, where my thinking is wrong, or where my behavior is wrong, and then I will look out for a solution, an altered attitude. So I've got my notes here from... Um, uh, Discovering Choices, which is one of my favourite Al-Anon books. And it's very hard for me if you say to me, how are you being selfish here? What is your mistake here? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> but you give me a list and I can go, oh, yes. That's the thing that I am doing. And some of these lists, you can use them both ways. You can use the list to tell you what not to do and to tell you what to do. And we talked about defects of, I talked about defects of thinking. I got a little list from Discovering Choices of... Uh, where my thinking is sometimes wrong. And this is what then goes onto my inventory. I go down the list and say, well, what am I doing? And I love this one. The defect. Trying to figure out why other people are the way they are. I don't need to find a formal name from a prayer book for a defect. I just say it how it is. Trying to figure out 
why people are the way they are. <laughs> um, fantasizing that people should be perfect. I find it much easier to identify an actual thinking pattern than to give it an abstract name of pride or jealousy or envy. Um, mental chatter about other people's actions. <coughs> That's a defect of thought. Chatter, 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 chatter. About what? About you. <laughs> so I get very concrete in this fourth column. So the structure I get from the big book, what were my mistakes? The content I take from the Al-Anon literature. The Al-Anon literature is mostly in the form of stories and sharing. So I need to work actively with that to extract what are the defects. And the literature is very, very rich. The rest of the, um, uh, the, rest of the inventories are very, very similar. I'm going to say one thing about the fear inventory, one thing about the sex inventory. The fear inventory... Um, you list the fears, all the things you're frightened of, and then you ask yourself one question. I'll go to page 68. We asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? And what that means practically is for me to look at the situation and say, I was depending on my plans to give me security, not depending on God saying, my spirit is safe. Whatever happens, even if I die, my spirit is safe. That's what relying on God means to me. If I can only be okay if I remain in this physical form, I will spend the rest of my life terrified. There's no way around it. Very simple. As soon as you're happy with dying, everything else is an extra. <laughs> um, I know, wide eyes, but there we go. Uh, <laughs> I can't change the truth. Um, and the sex inventory... It's got some specific questions, but honestly, it's very similar to the fourth column of the resentment inventory. It's just with a magnifying glass. That's all. I'm going to leave the discussion. It's all out of sequence now. There's less, going to be less time for later steps. I'll do my best. But let's have a ten-minute break, and then we'll do the rest of the steps. Okay? So, um, the question of pain. There are two parts of the answer. The first thing to do is to forgive the situation, the person, the fact. Whatever the thing is that is bothering me, 
I need to forgive it. Now, to forgive does not mean it's terrible, but I am going to accept it. That's false forgiveness. Real forgiveness is to withdraw my judgment from it. A friend of mine, Nadia, 20 years ago, in a firm I worked for, would say she'd come to my desk 8 o'clock every evening. We were the last two people in the office. And we'd list out the things which happened that day, which weren't so good. And she'd say after each one, it's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it's just a thing. <laughs> and that's real forgiveness, is where I say, it is the way it is. Maybe we can take steps to change things a little for the better, but it is the way it is. Pain, however, actually before that, when I forgive, it stops me adding to the pain, but there will be pain I have ordered and paid for, and if you've ordered pain and paid for it through thinking negative thoughts, the goods will be delivered. So the question is either pr to pretend I'm not feeling pain, but I don't know who the delivery company is in Israel, but if they knock on the door and you don't answer, they will come back the next day. <laughs> they will try to deliver again. <coughs> and pain is like this. So my experience is to visualize the pain in front of me and you imagine one of those martial arts like judo or karate where your opponent is over there and you say to the opponent, come at me, do your worst and you say to the pain, hit me with everything you've got. And when it hits, you name it, you feel where it is in the body, and often, five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes later, it's gone and the air is clear. And a friend of mine said once, don't stick a sticking plaster on this. You've been working very hard to get to this point. So when the pain is there, let it. And a sponsor once said to me, you don't need to process pain or any feelings. You need to feel them. That's why they're called feelings. The problem is that I never wanted to feel feelings 
I wanted to talk about them. I wanted to think about them. I wanted to analyze them. I then wanted to vomit them on other people. <laughs> but I didn't want to feel them. And when you feel them, you realize they don't present a threat. When they're happening, I feel like I'm going to explode. But eventually, the crying stops. And then you go and put the kettle on. And everything is normal. You fill the washing machine. Uh, so, step five. I've had friends who, when they do step five, go and spend all Sunday, different week in Great Britain, uh, all Sunday for a year, every Sunday with the sponsor, because they've written so much and it all requires such a lot of analysis. And if people want to do that, uh, you go and do that. But step five in the big book is where I convey, where I communicate the exact nature of my wrongs. And so a good step five can be 40 minutes to an hour of two types of things. On page 75, it says that we are to look for the um, uh, twists of character, that's defects of character, and dark crannies, crannies are corners, dark corners of the past. I have, an un I have a limited set of character defects. I have a limited set of dark corners of the past. Say it as it is, maybe give one example of each defect of character. But my friend Tom says, if you are a thief, the exact nature of your wrong is that you are a thief. You do not need to list every single thing you have stolen. If you nag, which is if I nag, when I nag, I don't just give the instruction once. I give it again and again and again until it is followed or until the person goes away. So the exact nature of my wrong is that I nag. I've now said it. There is nothing more to say. And if you do step five like that, it's quick. And you end up with a mental overview, a mental summary of the entire problem. You can hold the problem between your hands. And you go from having a universe of problem to a list on a sheet of paper. And it makes it manageable to me. Step six. Yes. But you have to go through the whole story to know that you're of this person. The way I do step four and five with sponsees 
is I accompany them on the writing of the step four. So the analysis and going through the detail happens then. But step five is a separate exercise where we bring all of the information together and we boil it down to a simple list and then you can breathe again. So it's like preparation throughout the year and then the exam when it all comes together. Um, step six. There are two ways of living. I can either act out or I can rely on God. There are only two options. There is a button for each. You get to press the button you want to press. So I don't need to be willing on each individual defect. I need to be willing across my life. This makes step six very sensible. It's very, very, why did I say sensible? Very manageable. I, and sensible. It means I don't need to reanalyze each defect. I say, do I want the ego system or do I want the God system? If this belongs to the ego system, I don't want it because the ego is all about fear. So step six is very simple for me and step seven is step three with sharp teeth. So in step three, in principle, I am giving over my life and will to God. In step seven, I'm doing it based on much better information than I had at step three. And I say the prayer on page 76 and then continue. Steps eight and nine. My step eight, that's where the hardest work is in the program because of the way I do it. Three columns. This isn't in the big book. Three columns. First column. What did I actually do? I've heard people say to me in the first column, I created a bad atmosphere in the room. And I want to know, well, I know what you mean. I've seen people create a bad atmosphere. But what did you do? Were you doing the dishes loudly, hoping that everyone else would notice you were doing the dishes? That's one way of doing it. But I want to know exactly what you did. Oh, you stayed silent and ignored your husband. Okay, so that's how you created the atmosphere. So concrete, specific, real-world action as it is seen by the other person. Not your intention, not your thoughts, not your feelings, what you actually did. Second column, what should I have done instead? Now, in AA, it's really, really simple. What should I do instead? Be useful, be nice. But if you're an anon, 
you can be useful and nice in a way which will kill people. Um, there's a quotation, I can't remember where it is from, it's not a program quotation, where someone says, she helps a lot of people. You can tell who they are by the terrified looks on their faces. <laughs> so with alcoholics, the second column of step eight, what should I have done instead? Not have stolen the car. Okay, really simple. There's no argument there. <laughs> Leave the money where it was. <laughs> In Al-Anon, it's a lot more complicated. And this is where, in the second column, what should I have done instead? This is the second place where I use the Al-Anon literature very heavily. I can't take a situation to the literature. I need to have studied the literature first, made my lists of how should I behave, how should I not behave, how should I think, how should I not think. And what comes out of my steps eight and nine is partly this third column, who suffered and how. And this is where I mentally put myself in the place of the person I'm in the relationship with and say, when someone treats me like that, how do I feel? And this produces the willingness. And I have to then do two things. Sometimes it requires a surface apology. I need to say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done what I did. What can I do to make it right? Sometimes it requires a subtle but real change in attitude and behavior. And this is where I construct what is called on page 69 of the big book, a sane and sound ideal for each relationship. 69. For each relationship or type of relationship. So, major family relationships, each one separately. Students is a whole category. Other AA members, a whole category. Other Al-Anon members, a whole category. And I get my ideal beliefs, thinking, and behavior straight from the Alamon literature. I read and read and read until I think, aha, that would have helped. If I had done that, <laughs> it would have been all right. And sometimes the sane and sound behavior is very subtle stuff. So if I send someone a text and it's a tricky relationship, it might be at the level of thinking. My ideal is not to think about their response to the text after I have sent it. Send the text and go and do something else, or when they do respond, I'm going to be full of negative emotion 
and I will react badly. So sometimes the, what I need to do to change is very internal. So what I get out of steps eight and nine, list of people to apologize to, and a, a set of sane and sound ideals for each relationship or domain of life. So I've had to have a sane and sound ideal for politics. I know we have trouble with politics in Great Britain. I know you don't have any trouble with politics here at all. But I have a very simple approach in my case, my sane and sound ideal. I know which party I support. I give them money. I lead them to it. I mentally stay out of it because I can't deal with it. I can't be everything. <laughs> so I do the thing that I'm good at. I leave other people to be activists. I can't. I'm not fit for that. Um, steps 10, 11, and 12. I'm going to start with step 12. Um, if I've decided to give my will and life to God, I'm the employee, God is the employer, and I don't need to understand the corporate strategy. All I need to know is what my boss wants me to do today. Now, the first thing I need to do is uh, be a child of God and let God look after me. And to do that, I say to God, where do I need to go today? Who do I need to talk to? What do I need to do to look after myself? If I'm in a terrible state, I can't be any real use to other people. So this comes first. The second role with God is that of employee to employer. So what are my obligations today? And that might be service within the fellowship. It might be service carrying the message to society, telling society or local professionals about the fellowship. It could be sponsorship. It could be home group service. And then there's service at work. So in my job, I treat the work as being for God, even though I have clients. I don't work for the clients, I work for the God, but for God, I send the document to the client. <laughs> that is what I'm doing for God. Uh, service and fulfilling obligations with friends and family. And then what obligations do I have to my community and to society? as a whole. Uh, again, because I'm so controlling and so opinionated, I stay out of society. Again, there are charities that do things that I think are important. Once a year, 
I write the checks and then put the whole thing out of my mind because I can't do it. And that's fine. I've come to terms with the fact that, as I said, I can't be everything. I can't have a finger in each pot. So I do a few things well rather than everything badly. But steps 10 and 11, there were some good questions that came in advance of this, which I'm going to answer, and some questions on sponsorship. Um, so in the morning, uh, all I need to do is go back to that position of peace, and sometimes it takes me a while to get to the position of peace, and I use a visualization where I imagine myself in this safe bubble <coughs> with the so-called real world out there, but I'm safe inside this bubble with my higher power. And I just wait until things relax and calm down. And that can take a while. And then I say to God, what do you want me to do today? Who do you want me to talk to? And what spirit do I do these actions in? And that one is easy. Calm, cheerful, helpful, but... Keep my mouth shut most of the time. Mind my own business. There are extra swear words included in those in the British English versions of that. Keep my mouth shut. Mind my own business. <laughs> uh, ask, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said right now? Does it need to be said by me? Um, sometimes I need a strategy of non-engagement when I'm going to be meeting a difficult person who uses lots of words but where there's not a lot of information, just a lot of words and a lot of emotion. With difficult people, and I have been difficult people. <laughs> um, <laughs> with difficult people, sometimes I need to, you can't stay silent, because that's aggressive. So you have to say something. And the six answers, when you have to say something, but you don't want to engage in the substance, six answers are yes. No. Really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And I just go back and forth between these. Don't tell anyone about this list. <laughs> or someone said to me once, you're using the list, aren't you? <laughs> 
I said, yes. <laughs> he said, I don't like this. I said, okay. <laughs> you can carry on forever. <laughs> A couple of other <laughs> in <laughs> Al-Anon. Yes, no, really? Wow, okay, thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, sometimes uh, in recovery we have acronyms, so the, the, the words spell, the first letters of the words spell another word. Wait, why am I talking? <laughs> it's a really helpful question to ask myself. Why is there noise coming out of my mouth? About five minutes later, waste. Why am I still talking? <laughs> um, in thinking about the day ahead, two, and I said this on Thursday, so I apologize, but uh, I get this from my friend Annie. Um, help is the sunny side of control. I've got to be careful that my help is really helping. Sometimes it looks like help, but nothing is getting better. I'm just busy. I'm just giving advice. <laughs> um, steps 10 and 11. So step 11, in the morning, all I'm doing Coming to a place of peace and with my higher power designing the day. Now, there are times I have done formal prayer. That's all right. So, there are, so step 11 in the morning. Uh, arrive at a place of peace. Design the day with my higher power. And sometimes there is formal prayer too. But the point of the formal prayer is to support the main business of step 11, which is to have a plan for the, for the day, a design for the day. It's very easy to have religion over here on one side of the room and step 11 over the other side and the religious observance is impeccable, but has no connection to step 11, because I'm not using that connection to inform my view of the day. I've got to bring the two together. Step 10. Someone said, can you clarify step 10? We have a problem here, <laughs> which is that the step 10 on the wall is very different than step 10 in the big book. Step 10 on the wall looks like miniature step 4. Step 10 in the book is a couple of things, page 84, page 85, page 84 is we continue to watch for bad thoughts, bad action, and we come back to right thoughts and right action. 
So it's like when you're driving the car, you adjust the steering wheel to come back to the middle of the lane. That's all. And page 85, saying to God, um, every day is a day when I must carry the vision of God's will into all my activities. So that gives me a focus. What do I do next? What do I do next? What do I do next? Um, let me just have a look. There was something here. How do you remove the problems in your thinking and behavior? Uh, a very simple answer is I don't. Uh, when I am in fear and ego, I cannot do anything right. When I'm at peace, I can't do anything wrong. So, all I need to do is step 10, which is to come back to the point of peace and basically to pause. And sometimes I'm on the phone to someone and I'll say, 30 seconds later, I'm still pausing. <laughs> sometimes I say, I'm going to have to pause until tomorrow or next week. Sometimes people have come back to me weeks later and I say, I'm still pausing. <laughs> I still don't know. So this gets rid of the need for constant self-improvement. I do not need to fix or control or improve myself. All I ever need to do is come back to the point of peace and from that point say, God, is there anything you do want me to do right now? Step 11. In the evening is a review of the day. It's where you get out of your car, you've been driving during the day, and there have been some bumps on the road, and you check the front of the car for blood and fur. <laughs> What has gone wrong? What did I hit today? Um, step 11 on page 86, the nightly review has got a bunch of questions. You could write for an hour a day if you wanted to. I don't find that useful. I do the step 11 review at night with my higher power. And I just look for a couple of major things. This is not a time to practice obsessive-compulsive disorder. It's fine just to look for a couple of things that went wrong. Say to God, show me the right thing, show me the corrective measure for tomorrow, and let's see if we can change a little tomorrow. And people ask what happens when it becomes monotonous. 
Um, I found it becoming monotonous when I write it out. It doesn't say in the book to write it. Sometimes writing helps. If writing helps, write. If writing stops helping, stop writing. <laughs> Sometimes people send each other written Step 11 reviews. And there are times that helps, but there are times that makes it worse. Because it takes the problems of the day and it makes them concrete and solid and like this physical thing in front of you. There are other times you write it and it goes from your head onto the paper, you're now free. The same action can do different things to different people at different times. So I think with step 11, with the review, there are lots of different ways of doing it. Ask for a range of different experiences. When it gets boring, change it. Um, is there anything I can do if sponsees get through the steps but don't do a nightly review? The very simple answer to this is that's their problem. As a sponsor, it's not my problem. As a sponsor, I get to offer someone a program, I get to explain it, but it is not my job to convince you it is a good idea, and it is not my job to persuade you to do it. If you do it, it is because you want to, not because I've told you to, because then you're doing it for yourself and not for me. However, um, when a sponsee disappears for six weeks and then comes back in enormous pain, my ego instinct is to tell them off, to wag my finger at them, to list all of the things that they have done wrong and to say, it's obviously your fault that you're feeling this way. Because that was one of the tools I learned as a child. If you want to get someone to do something, you make them feel guilty. And because they want to get rid of the guilt, they will obey you so that you withdraw your judgment of them. It's a very simple mechanism and it works, but it hurts. So I want to not do that with sponsees. So I put the question back to sponsees. I point them to the list of actions that I've said, I've given them earlier, and say, if you want to feel differently, maybe you want to act differently, before we discuss any detail. Have a look. Have you done what you agreed to do six months ago? Put all of those actions in place for a week, two weeks, maybe a month. And then we'll talk about the detail. 
because what I find is that when I'm taking all of the actions that are offered to me, most of my emotional disturbance dries up, dries off, just gone. And then you're left with real things to deal with. So I'll say to sponsees, this is what I've offered you in the past. Would you like to do what has already been offered? It's very different than saying you're a naughty child. But it all goes back to the basic question to someone. Do you want to get well? Do you want to feel differently? If you want to feel differently, you're going to need different beliefs, different thinking, different actions. The choice is now yours. Um, sponsees who don't want to sponsor others. And the question, what if people don't have time for sponsorship? Um, I think there are two points. The first one is... The, my basis for sponsoring other people is um, the solution to all of my addiction and alanonism is becoming a servant of God as opposed to a servant of me. So the whole basis for the deal, the whole basis of the program is that when you get to the end, it is so you can be of service to your higher power in whatever way your higher power decides. And the second point is that, um, I hope this isn't blasphemous to say so, but a friend of mine is, says, God is of above average intelligence. God is smarter than most people. And so if I give the job, if I say to God, I've got a family, I have work, I have a household, I have a this, I have a that, and someone has asked me to sponsor them. Or seven people have asked me to sponsor them. It's God's job to find a way for me to do that and get everything done. And I'm going to finish on this um, simple point. Uh, and it's a story which could take 15 minutes to tell, or two minutes, I'll give the 30-second version. If you have a pot which is full of potatoes, you would say the pot is full of potatoes. And then you pour chickpeas in, and the chickpeas, in go, the chickpeas go in between the potatoes, and it now looks full. And then you pour rice in, and the rice goes in the gaps between the chickpeas, which are in the gaps between the potatoes, and it looks full until you put the water in, and you, you'd think now it's full. Is there anything missing? Once it's full up with water, potatoes, rice, and chickpeas, can you add anything else to the pot? Salt, a little bit of salt and spice, tie, okay, now we have the salt and spice. The water is up to the brim, 
Can you add anything else? Heat. <laughs> and that's the bit that God adds. So God is very, very resourceful in my experience. There are ways of fitting everything in that I might need to be, this is a terrifying word for people in recovery, flexible. <laughs> I may need to, to use quick, simple solutions rather than complex solutions. I might need to not fix someone, but instead give them a simple task where fixing them would take an hour, but the simple task, a sponsor once said to me, um, I said, I'm miserable, I was studying, it was Sunday, I'd been in all day, and he could have spent an hour on the phone to me examining my thoughts about my feelings about my studying. <laughs> and instead he said, when was the last time you smelled a flower? And I said, what has that got to do with anything? He said, go and smell a flower and then call me back. It took me an hour <laughs> to find a flower. <laughs> when I got home and called him, he was out. <laughs> this was very successful sponsorship. Uh, <laughs> um, we've come to the end of the time that we have. I have um, little cards with, uh, I, I write a little blog which has got some information on it, and I can give you a card for the blog if you use the internet, um, uh, which might help or it might not. Um, and it just leaves me to uh, thank you for being here. I've enjoyed this enormously. Um, and would someone like to close with the Serenity Prayer? Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.